Praise the Lord. It's great to see everybody today. Why don't we turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 so that we can have our scripture reading for today. We are going to be looking at verses 15 to 20. Verses 15 to 20. This is what the word of the Lord says. Beginning in verse 15. In this confidence, I intended to come to you, excuse me, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and, to, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes and yes and no and no at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. For as many as are the promises of God are in Him In Him they are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Let's pray. Father, the Apostle Paul in chapter 12 said that he was caught up into the third heaven and that he heard such such inexpressible unspeakable things, beautiful things, wondrous things, things that are not lawful to even utter. And Father, as we think about Your glory and as we think about the greatness of the inheritance that awaits us, Lord, that is our inheritance. Lord, that is our glory. That is our paradise that Paul was talking about. And Father, I pray that you would always help us to live with this eternal mindset, that you would always help us, Lord, to live in such a way that, Lord, we live with great expectancy of a glorious hope, not in this world, Father, because it will not be found in this place. No matter what course we pursue, no matter what sin, what pleasure, what lifestyle we may try to grasp after. Ultimately, Lord, it's grasping for the wind. We know that we have in this place no abiding city. And so, Father, help us, like Paul, to set our hope on the God who raises the dead. That is, to have an eschatological hope, to have a hope that is fixed on future glory, the glory of our future hope in Christ. Lord, bless your word uh, among us today. Please, Lord, be with me. Give me a mouth to speak. Help me to speak as it were the very oracles of God to your people. Father, we've come to see Jesus. Father, we've come to hear your word. We've come to sense and to feel and to know and understand your presence by your spirit among us today. And so we pray, Father, for those operations of the Spirit that transcend any human manipulation, 
any human activity, any human ingenuity. God, we desire for you to be present here, to work here, to meet us here, to encourage us by the encouragement that is found in the Scriptures. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And with that, we have before us today a glorious passage of Scripture, albeit it is a bit complicated. Do I sound a little loud out there? Everything okay? All right, because I, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm too loud. But if not, that's okay, because um, I want it to be loud so that none of you fall asleep. Okay? So <laughs> I might wake up a few babies out there, but it's okay. It's a good way to start them off. Especially Jackson, we celebrate um, baby Jackson's presence among us. He's here for his first worship service. Praise the Lord. Pray that he would be saved at a very young age. This is kind of like an incognito baby dedication right now, right? <clears throat> we're, we're so glad to have you guys and to have Jackson with us healthy and present, right? Present among us. Amen. Well, yes, we're looking at... Um, Paul's continued explanation of his ministry, really the integrity of his ministry among the Corinthians. And I was just struck that for the Apostle Paul, we're looking at a man who, for him, the gospel had changed him so deeply that was surveying all of the different elements of the life of the Apostle Paul. Every aspect of Paul's life was radically altered by the gospel. Now, we're looking at his integrity so that Paul and his integrity in the, gospel, or in the ministry was also rooted in the gospel. But for the apostle Paul, every aspect of his life was altered because of the gospel. Could that be said of us, brothers and sisters? That every aspect of our lives is altered because of the gospel. The way that we conduct ourselves at work, the way that we conduct ourselves among our family members, especially our unsaved family members, the way that we operate in society. The Apostle Paul just seemed to be absolutely dominated by a sense of what the gospel had done in him, that everything in the very core and the very soul of this man was now utterly ruled and governed and dominated by this beautiful gospel that he had come to know, he had come to believe in, and now... The Son of God had come to be everything to him, least of which was not in his ministry. His ministry reflects the same sort of altered life, if you would, that now he did everything in the ministry for the glory of God. Everything in the ministry was done in such a way so that he would be found to be pleasing to him, pleasing to God. I thought, you know what? Oftentimes in the Christian life, we need incentive for holy living, right? We need, we need an incentive so that we don't slip into apathy, so that we don't slip into just routine, rote, sort of boring Christianity, I guess a way we could say that. R.C. Sproul wrote a marvelous book on worship and what it's like, and he said, you know what, there are too many Christians in the church that are bored. And I thought, you know, how can that be in light of such a glorious gospel that we have? And I thought, you know what, Paul, the reason Paul's life was not boring, the reason Paul didn't live in apathy, the reason Paul's life was always lived with such indomitable passion for the glory of God is because Paul understood this great reality that he speaks about in 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, that one day, brothers and sisters, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And therefore, he says, based on that reality, he says, we always seek to be pleasing to him. Let that be that incentive that drives your daily lives. In everything that I do, let me be pleasing to him in all things because... I'm going to appear before him one day. One day I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And oh, how did I want to be pleasing to my master on that day. Paul wanted to be pleasing to him. And he wanted to have a ministry that he could, that could be commended, that the Corinthians could boast in. And so, again, Paul spends lengthy, lengthy sections of the book of 2 Corinthians not only defending his apostolic authority, but then also commending his integrity and talking about why it was that he could not be blamed, as many of his critics were charging him with, with being fickle, with being double-minded, with being duplicitous, with double-talk, this language of yes, yes, and no, no, of being uh, indecisive, of having bad decision-making skills, and beneath all of that, they were charging him with having these carnal, sinful motives, maybe even hidden motives that the Corinthians didn't know about. So let's consider just for a moment here, again, this complicated correspondence with the church. Paul's complicated correspondence with the Corinthian church, because what you find in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians alike is that there are several, uh, there are several itineraries for the Apostle Paul. If you look, for example, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, there the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that after visiting Macedonia, he wanted to come through Corinth again. And that being part of the Jerusalem collection to collect that, that, that gift for the poor churches of Jerusalem. But we know that something changed. Plans were altered so that he did not end up going from Ephesus to Macedonia and then back down to Corinth and then from Corinth to be launched down into Judea. But something happened so that Paul had to intend, therefore, to go directly to them. That is to, like he says right here in verses 15 and 16, to pass through uh, Corinth and then go to Macedonia and back again from Macedonia to them. But what actually ended up happening is in the course of this correspondence, Paul had to go right from Ephesus, that's where he was, to go from Ephesus directly to Corinth on an emergency visit, if you would, to visit them and to deal with what is called the painful visit. You can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter, three, verse, or chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. He had to go and to come to them because of apparently some faction or maybe even some individual that was opposing Paul, and he had to go and deal with it swiftly. But then, after going to Corinth, he went back to Ephesus and ultimately made his way through all the way up to Macedonia. But Paul makes it very clear that his intention in all of this was to bless them. You see that there in verse, uh, six, uh, verse 15. He said, in this confidence, that is the confidence that he already laid out, verses 12 to 14, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. Paul's in whole intention for visiting them was to bless them. The problem, therefore, and the reason why ultimately he had to switch up his itinerary so much was because they were not in a position to be blessed by him. In matter of fact, they were in a position where he had to go and visit them and to bring, if you would, sorrow, to make them sorrowful with a heavy rebuke 
And between the writing of 1 and 2 Corinthians, there's even another letter that most commentators and scholars now believe to be the, what, what's called the, the, the severe letter, a severe letter of rebuke that made the church very uh, sorrowful. But his intention was for their good, and that's Paul's point. He intends to bless them for their good, but because of, their, uh, because of where they're at, because of the trouble that they're in, because this individual was sort of opposing Paul, he had to come with rebuke. He wanted to join up with them. He wanted to partner with them in the gospel. Look at verse 16. He makes that really plain when he says, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. It's interesting where he says, to be helped by you, by you to be helped on my journey. In other words, he wanted to partner with them. He wanted them to join and participate in the gospel activity that he was engaged in in his missionary journey. But they would not help him. It's interesting that he says to send, them on, to send him on his way. That's literally what the word means, to help or to send, literally to send on his way. In other words, there, 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 there should have been an official sending out with a blessing of the Apostle Paul, but because of the conditions there, that could not happen. And again, he begins in verse 17 sort of to recapitulate once again the whole issue of his integrity. Look at verse 17. He says, Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this. Was I? In other words, he was not being indecisive. He was not being fickle. That's what the word vacillate means. And literally, the Greek, uh, uh, the, the original, literally says... I did not employ vacillation. It's interesting, but that no English translation uses that translation. There's a whole Greek word here that's not even translated. Kraomai. It means to use or to put into employment. Matter of fact, the King James comes the very closest to this when it says, I did not use lightness. In other words, he did not employ a fickle attitude in the way that he dealt with his journeys and the way that he dealt with the Corinthians. Ultimately, the way he corresponded with them did not reflect vacillation, indecisiveness, fickleness, frivility, levity, all these synonyms that I looked up in the dictionary to get some good words for this one word here, vacillate. I have many people that were, were wondering, what, is, what does vacillation even mean? You know, Vaseline? I mean, what are we talking about here? Vacillation is not that common of a word, but it just simply means to be fickle or indecisive or to be, um, to be uh, double-tongued. So he's not duplicitous. He's not talking out of both sides of his mouth as it would. And look at what he says here, sort of a parallel of what he said earlier in verse 12. He says, the things that he purposed, he did not purpose according to the flesh. That's very similar to what he said in verse 12 when he says, he says there that he, his conscience was in, godly, in holiness, godly sincerity. He says, not in fleshly wisdom, not in carnal, fleshly, sinful wisdom. That is, wisdom devoid of the Spirit of God, wisdom devoid of holiness. That's the same thing he's saying here. I wasn't motivated according to the flesh. The things that I did didn't line up with 
the flesh. And now remember, the flesh has many meanings in Scripture, but here it's speaking about that, that sphere of the sinful nature of man, that unredeemed aspect of man's makeup that he still carries about, that we still have as, as, um, in this body. We still have an element of our unredeemed human nature that will be one day glorified. He said, I was not motivated by this sinful nature. I was not motivated by sin. There was no deceit in Paul. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, uh, being a hypocrite. He wasn't employing double talk. And you know, this whole thing spoke to me about is just the fact that in the church there's so much, so much miscommunication, misunderstanding that can take place. And that's why, for me, this whole passage was really a warning to be the type of minister that is not quickly misunderstood, to be the kind of minister that ministers in such a way that you have integrity, that you are, like Paul says, a steward of the mysteries of God, to be regarded as a wise steward, someone who does take care of the ministry entrusted to him with integrity, with the utmost integrity, because ministry can get really complicated and really complex, and sometimes it can get really uh, confused. And so the need to be clear, the need to speak with clear speech and not double talk and to be a man of your word and not to be the type of minister that says one thing and does another or says one thing and quickly changes his mind without having ample and clear reason to do so. But Paul is saying that he did have a clear reason to do so. Now Paul's going to sort of shift gears here, right? He's setting forth his travel plans. He's explaining to them why on a very practical level he had to change up his travel plans. But then he begins to argue what we could say in a gospel-centered way for his integrity. Now notice that the gospel has direct relevance to Paul's integrity in the ministry. And that's really my second point. Paul's gospel-centered integrity in the ministry. Now look at how he first argues for this, verse 18. He says, but as God is faithful, so that but there is an extremely important conjunction because it brings in a very sharp contrast to what he was saying, to the things that he's being accused of by his critics. He's saying no, quite to the opposite of all of that. In actuality, he says, as God is faithful, Our word to you is not yes and no. So first, the Apostle Paul begins by appealing to the faithfulness of God. Amazing that for Paul, his integrity is analogous with Paul's own or God's own character. If you would, this is proper or theology proper having direct consequences upon Paul's ecclesiology, how he conducted himself in the church. In light of who God is, the minister of God is to conduct himself in a certain way. And Paul says, look, God is faithful. And as a result to that, interesting way of of arguing, isn't it? That as a a result of the reality of the faithfulness of God, Paul says, look, our word, right? Here is a truth about God, and now here is a truth about us that our word to you is not yes and no. And you know what? This is is really powerful. This is nuclear strength for ministry. 
to look at theology proper, to look at the character and attributes and nature of God, and then because of who God is, then to derive certain ecclesiastical principles from the very character and nature of God. That's the way that we ought to do ministry. We ought to do ministry in light of who God is. Every time the faithfulness of God is brought up by the Apostle Paul, that is, every time Paul uses this phrase, the faithfulness of God, usually something that God does follows. And I found this kind of intriguing. This is almost like uh, an aside here. But that our whole salvation process, when he connects it to the faithfulness of God, you can see that from the faithfulness of God flows some aspect of our salvation. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son. Election, election, our calling, our election to fellowship with His Son. Uh, also, 1 Corinthians 10.13 when he says, no temptation has overtaken you as such as common a man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, so that God's faithfulness is found in our sanctification. Also, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he speaks right to the issue of glorification here. Faithful is he who calls you for the purpose of glorifying you, and He also will bring it to pass. God will do something in light of His faithfulness. Also, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, He says, The Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. There, talking about our perseverance, our preservation. You see how that the faithfulness of God directly leads into something that God does for us. And so here, the Apostle Paul is arguing in the same way. He says because of the faithfulness of God, as a result of that, or flowing right out of that, is an integrous apostolic ministry. Directly flowing out of who God is, is the trustworthiness. From the faithfulness of God comes the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul in his ministry. Comes the faithfulness of the word that they heard from Paul in his ministry. Now notice, in the very next breath, he doesn't just leave it at that, looking and considering the character of God, though that could have been enough. That's enough of an incentive to say, we minister in a holy way because our God is holy, and certainly that is true, but he has a more Christocentric direction than that. Look with me at verse 19 where the Apostle Paul says, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus who was preached among you by us, and then he clarifies by who, me, Silvanus, Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him, in him. And so this message, this word was confirmed in Christ. That faithful message that was preached by Paul and his companions was affirmed in him. It's amazing to me how that the Apostle Paul can sum up his entire ministry, his entire message, his entire preaching by these little phrases, Son of God. He says, Jesus Christ, right? I think the NAS says, Christ Jesus. The original Greek has the order reversed. It is literally Jesus Christ. 
He sort of sums up the entire content of his preaching with these little phrases. And he's done this before. I love it. Because it really gets to the emphasis of what you preach. What is our preaching to be about? It is to be about the person and work of Christ. This is sort of a parenthetical thought. But I just want to point it out to you because he does this over and over. He does it here in 2 Corinthians. He does it elsewhere, but explicitly he does it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, that famous, well-known, often quoted passage. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. You see that? And Him crucified. He makes it even more explicit, more Christ-centered in Colossians when he says, we proclaim Him. Simply speaking then, that personal pronoun, Him, sums up all of the gospel content of apostolic preaching. What is the summary of everything that the apostles preached? Him. And all of the concentric circles that flow in and out of Christ. Everything about the Christian life, about the Christian religion, about Christian doctrine is all rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see that all throughout the book of Acts. They preached Christ. They were preaching Jesus. They preached Him all over the book of Acts. Paul's point is that the Son of God, that is Christ Jesus, is the summary of every saving purpose that God has accomplished in redemption. And I think that's so important, as we'll see. But he brings up these two men, and I think we should sort of look at them for a moment. He brings up Silvanus, and he brings up Timothy. Now, Timothy is famous for being Paul's young protege. Timothy is Paul's faithful child. He is, he is his true companion in the faith. And you know of Timothy's Example, you know of his exemplary example in the ministry. If you turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2, for example, you get uh, an amazing commentary, really a commendation by the Apostle Paul on behalf of Timothy so that we can see what kind of metal this man was made out of. He was an exemplary minister, a minister that we should all uh, long to be like, even if you're not a minister, but for me, a great example of a ministry, but what you should expect of a minister. Look at verse 19 of Philippians 2. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus but you know of his proven worth that he served with me like in, in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You see how dear and near Timothy was to the Apostle Paul? Do you see how trustworthy uh, Timothy was? How Paul could so easily commend him? I love it because Paul's saying, look, we, Timothy and I are interchangeable. What you get from me, you'll get from Timothy. What you get from Timothy, you're going to get from me. I love it. The same message, the same preaching, the same theology, the same integrity, the same concern and care for the purity of the church. Paul, matter of fact, says, I have no one of kindred spirit like him. No one. Wow, that's amazing. Something about Timothy that he had done that left such an impression on Paul. Also, Silas is mentioned. Silas is an important figure in the book of Acts. 
or excuse me, Silvanus, who is also called Silas. In the book of Acts, you see Silvanus, for example, in the Jerusalem council. He's there. He's among other leading brethren. Acts chapter 15, verse 32, he is sent out by uh, the church to do missionary activity with them. And in verse, or actually verse 32, he is called a prophet of God. He is a prophet, apparently had the gift of prophecy. I'm not sure if he was foretelling the word as much as he was forth-telling the word, but he is called a prophet. And he accompanied the Apostle Paul, and it says there, other leading men. So Silvanus is a trustworthy minister. Timothy is a trustworthy minister. And through these integrous ministers came a faithful and trustworthy message. That's Paul's whole point, that what you hear from us is trustworthy because of who God is and because of who God has made them. Now Paul's point in verse 20 makes it very clear the gospel direction, the Christ-centered nature of what he wants to talk about here. Notice how he hinges this whole thing. And in this example of the integrity of his ministry, he gives us such an amazing word of Christology. When he says, picking up after this little parenthetical note on him and Silvanus and Timothy, after that little short parenthesis, he picks up again this theme of the Son of God, Christ Jesus, okay? And he says, verse 20, for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Let's just start right there. I mentioned to Josh on the way to church today that Jesus is a fulcrum savior. And Paul and Josh rightly pointed out, a fulcrum is a, is a, a pivot point. It's a, what, what sort of right, stands in, be, in the middle of a, of a balancing beam and, and sort of hin- everything hinges on this fulcrum point. Jesus, according to Paul, is in essence a fulcrum savior, meaning that all of God's promises hinge directly upon Jesus Christ. That is a, that is a massive statement. That is a huge statement. That means that all of God's redemptive promises, yes, all of them, hinge on the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, and they are affirmed in Him. They are yes in Him. He is the way. He is the fulfillment. He is the the manner in which all of God's promises are fulfilled. That's an incredible hermeneutic, by the way. To view Scripture in that way. That everything that you can know about the promises of God were complete and fulfilled in Christ. It's just amazing for us New Covenant believers to be able to look at our Savior, to be be able to look at Jesus' cross work, and then to see that that is the great, the grand apex of God's activity in the world Brothers and sisters, everything from the very beginning, from the garden, from when God said, let there be light, all the way back to Genesis 3, when He said that there would come a seed, and that He would pit the serpent against the seed, and that the seed would crush the head of the serpent, and that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed, all of that seed theology ultimately culminating on the person of Jesus Christ. It's an an amazing thing to think. That all the way back to Genesis, in the garden, all the way back to Abraham with the promises, the patriarchs, 
all of the covenant blessings, the covenant promises that were made to Moses, to David, all of those things are contingent upon the work of Jesus Christ. After all, this was Jesus' own Christ-centered hermeneutic of Scripture. For example, if you look at Luke chapter 24, he makes this very explicit. He says in verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into His glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all of the Scriptures. If that is not an exhaustive hermeneutic for how you interpret all of the Bible, I don't know what is. What is the key that unlocks the interpretation of the Bible? It is not Israel. It is not prophecy. It is not you know, the Spirit. It is not the Trinity. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the key to unlock all of the Bible. And the world is blind to that very fact. For this Friday, I had a young man telling me how absolutely absurd the Old Testament is to him. What is all the death about? What is all the, the sacrifice, all the sacrifices and the blood and bring this goat out here and you have to slaughter it and kill this dove? And it's amazing, but that in doing that, he doesn't understand the Christ-centered nature of the Bible. I said, you know what those sacrifices are about? You know why those animals had to die? You know why this and that had to happen? Do you know what that whole sacrificial system was about? It was all pointing to the Lamb of God that one day would once and for all shed His blood, make atonement, make sacrifice, propitiate the wrath of God. They were all foreshadowing His work. Also in Luke 24, verse 44, He says, These are My words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about Me in the law, and, and the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And there you have what is often called the threefold unity of the law. The Psalm, the prophets, and the, and the, uh, the, and, and, and the, the law. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 just to see one more place where this, uh, this sort of Christocentric hermeneutic is employed by another uh, biblical writer, this time Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, so that you see that all of this Christ-centeredness is something that permeates the apostolic tradition. He says in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful researches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. All of those Old Testament texts contained in the prophets were predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. What do they long to look at? They long to look at the Christ-centered nature of the fulfillment of all of these redemptive promises, promises that God had made from the beginning of time, from ages past. 
Just as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the things that were promised through the prophets long ago. This is what Christ fulfills. And this is the direction that Paul is leading them. He is leading them from promise to fulfillment and then to glory. Or another way, kind of a, another uh, way that I thought of maybe saying this so it would be easier to write down, from covenant to confirmation to consummation. That is the way that Paul is arguing. Covenant, because these promises are inseparable from the covenant dealings with, of God with His people. Ephesians chapter 12, or Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 calls these the covenant or the promises of the, or the covenant promises. They're contained in all of God's covenant dealings with His people. Confirmation, of course, because Christ confirms them. Paul says right here in Corinthians, they are yes in Him. In other words, they find their final confirmation, their affirmation in Christ. Where do you see all these promises be made good upon? Where does God make good on His promises that He makes? In Him, in Christ. As a matter of fact, he says, it is by Him or through Him that the Amen comes. Look at that back in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. It's kind of a tricky passage, but it's interesting because there is no personal pronoun. You read that? In verse 20, when he says, therefore also through him is our amen, that's actually not as literal as what the Greek says. The literal Greek would say something like, through him is the amen to the glory of God. Wow. Through him is the amen, the amen that matters most in redemption. The making good of all of these covenant promises are yes in him. And, likewise, we join in this affirmation. You see that last phrase there? To the glory of God. And Paul, so technical, so careful, through us. You see that? So we join in the, the, the promise-confirming work of Christ by giving our amen to the things that God has done. This is the way that he's arguing. This is the direction that Paul is going with this. He is going in such a direction that he is making the Corinthians aware of the things that they both agree on. We both give our amen to the things that God has done. We both agree that God is faithful. We both agree what He has done in the Gospel through the Son of God. Through the Son of God. So, from covenant to confirmation, and then lastly, he moves to consummation. It will result in the glory of God. How beautiful. How wonderful. As Paul is setting before them this, want, this marvelous redemption, the point of it all is saying this, just as God is faithful in this marvelous salvation that you are now participating in, that was preached to you, the gospel that led to your salvation, the very gospel that Christ comes to confirm, that you confirm yourselves to the glory of God, it will all lead to the glory of God. It's an amazing thing. So that the consummation of the promises is the fulfillment of everything that God has done in redemptive history. It's just amazing when you begin to interpret the Bible this way, you begin to look back into the Old Testament and wonder why certain things took place. Why did God focus on certain issues? And what does that have to do with Jesus Christ, after all? 
you study the preservation of God, preserving the seed, for example, right? The promised child. I mean, what was the story of Jacob and Esau about anyway? Why does God have to take so much pen and ink on the fact that two brothers had a grudge against each other? Is it just to learn moral principles? Oh, certainly it is that. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will learn of their, based on their mistakes, based on their past examples, etc. But what does that have to do with Christ? I would suggest to you that should Jacob perish, the seed would perish. And the promised seed cannot perish. Therefore, it is important what happens at that river between two brothers and whether or not it results in what Jacob feared, death, that Esau would have been hostile, violent, that he'd made good on his promise that he made earlier in Genesis to say, once my father died, then I will go and slay Jacob. Why is that such a big deal? You slay Jacob, you slay the promise. You slay the promise, and the Christ child does not come. Everything, it's just, it's just I'm growing this. I don't got it all. I, don't, I, I haven't figured it all out. But I just, I'm starting to see more and more and more of Christ in all of the Scriptures, just like He said. In all of the Scriptures, they all testify to Him. They all testify to Him. And so finally, all of this confirmation, everything that God did through Jesus Christ, the very things that they attest to themselves, will result or will, re- will end in the glory of God, glorifying God in Christ by agreeing to what He has done in the gospel. And then that's where Paul will pick up next time. Actually, he goes on, that's where I'll pick up next time. But it was just too much to go into verse 21 as he'll pick up on that very thing. As he unites, he co-ops his critics with him And then he goes into, look, the very person who has united us, the very person that has worked in us to establish a amen on behalf of you, on behalf of me, what Christ has done, it is God. He has anointed us together, bringing us together in that. And that's where he'll go next. Lastly, let me just make this observation because as we're looking at Paul's defense, there is so much ecclesiology here for us to learn from, to remember to be careful as the Corinthians have erred. Based on their misunderstandings, they are now beginning to undermine the character of God. They are beginning to undermine the work of the Apostle Paul, his apostolic authority, which leads me to believe that we'd be very careful, brothers and sisters, not to make a non-essential issue like what they did with Paul, questioning his methodology, questioning his integrity, questioning his travel plans, and then to begin to undermine the entire gospel ministry, the entire gospel message that Paul preached. So we would be very careful, brothers and sisters, to be understood in the church, to know uh, clearly, not to make false accusations. And I know that for any minister, that's difficult even for me to say, because it almost sounds like I'm saying, be careful, don't question me falsely, and I may have some hidden motive in it, but no, I don't have any hidden motive in it other than this, that I've seen this very thing played out in the church. I've seen how quickly misunderstandings happen in the church, how quickly division arises in the church. Don't you notice that throughout all Paul's writings, he is constantly, constantly working on the unity of the church? 
constantly. He is constantly spurring them on to more unity, to get rid of division, to do away with divisive brethren, to step in where there's disputes because we are so prone to it. We need the grace of God, both pastor and parishioner alike. We have to be understood. And that, I think, is Paul's overarching burden. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. He doesn't want to be painted for something that he's not. And therefore, the very unity of the church depends on it. What is the key? Once again, I have to bring us back to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, quickly, and we'll close there. But what is the key to all of this? The key to all of this is to, is to have the mind of Christ. And as Paul does in Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, that is really pointing us backwards, isn't it? What attitude? Well, the attitude that he's been listing off in verses 1 through 4. So that he begins by telling them, is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any consolation of love? Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Is there any affection and compassion? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose. This is precisely what the Corinthians need right at this juncture. They need this level of unity. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, there's the connecting word, right? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look merely to your own personal interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you. Have this attitude. The NASB translates that as attitude, but literally it's the word mind. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to give us this incredible example of how Christ himself humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on the cross. Brothers and sisters, I pray for us that we would always strive to do this, that we will always strive to be understood, to speak with integrity, to minister with integrity, to obey with integrity, to be united with one another, to be of the same mind, to have the same heart, to be intent on one purpose. There is no other way a church can succeed. There is no other way. I mean, we're seeing the very foundations of Paul's unity with the Corinthians right here being undermined. They're eroding right before Paul's eyes. And so Paul is eager, even desperate, to make sure that this church gets back on the same page with Paul. Let's pray. Father, I know that as complicated as the example that we have here with Paul, as complicated as this correspondence may be, and sometimes as hard as it is to say, well, what does all that have to do with me? Father, I know that you have lessons for us to learn. I know that you want us to lay the groundwork even now for Heritage Grace to be a church that is intent on one purpose, to be united around the truths of the gospel. Lord, we know that you are faithful, and you've proven your faithfulness 
in what you have done in your son. You've proven your faithfulness in how you have fulfilled so many promises, all of the promises, thousands of promises that could have gone astray, that could have gone awry. You made good on those promises. Therefore, we can give our amen to the glory of God. And Father, I pray that You would confirm us in this. Establish us together, Father, for, for the single purpose of advancing the gospel to the glory of God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.